back then it was really validation tool. Here's my idea. I don't have the capital. Do you guys like it? Keeping a website offline, waiting till everything's perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Get out there, get something up. That's when you start learning. That's when you start iterating. Actually, you've got to really make everyone realize it's okay to to fuck it up. It's fine. Let's take that learning. Let's own the learning. And once you start owning it and taking it, people don't feel bad about it. They feel liberated by it. Welcome to Add to Cart, Australia's leading e-commerce podcast that express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of online retail. Every week, Nathan Bush from eSuite and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and director at e-commerce talent agency eSuite. Now, it's fair to say that there's not many people that I would trust my phone with, especially in an unlocked state. But today's guest is at the top of the list. That guest is Rob Ward, co-founder and CEO of Quadlock. Now, 10 years old, Quadlock is a case mounting system for people with active lifestyles, whether this be driving, riding, cruising, running, golfing, cycling, or even singing. Yeah, singing is an active lifestyle. Quadlock has all your phone mounting needs covered. Quadlock is now sold, started in Australia, and is now sold in over 100 countries with an annual revenue exceeding $100 million. Better still, it's entered the vernacular with many people no longer mounting their phones, but rather quadlocking their phones. That's where we all want to get to, right? Today, Rob takes us on the journey of how he started Quadlock with his co-founder, Chris. It's a brilliant story, given they've been completely bootstrapped up until a massive scale and have scaled responsibly along the way. I really enjoyed hearing Rob's approach for this. You wouldn't believe that it actually starts with a novelty bottle opener, but I'll let him tell that story. We also discuss how they approach quadlock ripoffs, the beauty of having limited SKUs, and why they're focusing on the direct-to-consumer model to serve their customers better. Now, before we launch in, if you're coming along to the Add to Cart meetup at Retail Global tomorrow night, make sure you say hi. I'd love to see you there. Tickets are getting really tight, but if you head to the Eventbrite page in the show notes or from the Retail Global agenda, you may be able to snap up some of the last spots. Really looking forward to that one. All right, so thanks to our sponsors, Shopify Plus and Signet, here's our conversation with Rob Ward, co-founder and CEO of Quadlock. Rob, thank you for joining us on Add to Cart, especially racing your way back from your Facebook lunch to join us when you couldn't get an Uber. Yeah, I think, um, well, thanks, Nathan. It's one of those things, I think when you throw that much VC money at something and you educate everyone that the service should be amazing service and really, really cheap, it's actually a false economy. I think that's what we're seeing playing out pretty much right now with Uber. Well, I hope Facebook at least bought your lunch. No comment, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into it. Again, for people who may not have heard of Quadlock, and I doubt there's many people in Australia who haven't, can you tell us how Quadlock started with your co-founder, Chris? Yeah, definitely. So for those that may not have heard of it, it's a case-based mounting system for people with active lifestyles. So if you use your iPhone and you're into running or riding your bike or your motorcycle or boating or anything like that, we're the thing that means you can use your smartphone and all the apps on your smartphone in that activity, which is ever since we 
you know, 10 years ago started this has just become more and more and more important. So it actually started, my co-founder Chris Peters was actually working for an industrial design mob in Sydney at the time and he just got the brand new iPhone, it was a 3, and you couldn't actually get him in Australia at the time. He jailbroke it and he was trying to get around Sydney on his bicycle. Sydney didn't know and he's riding around having to pull it out of his pocket all the time. He's like, I just need this thing on my bars. And that was sort of the genesis of the idea. And it's sort of, you know, from we did start in cycle, but we sort of had other ideas that this could become a bigger, a bigger thing than just cycle. That's amazing. You've just brought back memories of jailbreaking iPhones back when they were tied to carriers and really limited. That was, that's hilarious. Okay. So in my research that I did, one of the early activities that you did was a Kickstarter campaign, but we've actually heard a few Kickstarter stories on Add to Car, but yours stood out because of some celebrity traction that you got as well. Yeah, I think you might have your timeline slightly out here. <laughs> or I could just be doing dodgy research. Yeah, I mean, it was 10, 11 years ago. So what actually happened was we had a couple of businesses going at the time and the first sort of consumer business we did was after I went right through, I watched every video on Kickstarter, and um, which you couldn't do anymore. And uh, we came up with the idea of an iPhone bottle opener called the Opener Case. And we launched that on Kickstarter. And it was our experiment into e-commerce, consumers, shipping a product, Facebook, all these like, you know, Web 2.0, all this, these things that were sort of new, transacting online, Shopify, all this fun, all this stuff we sort of take for granted now. It was just... It wasn't as easy as it was as it is now, but it was all just starting to become accessible and the barriers to like entry were coming down. Kickstarter was a part of that. So we sort of thought, we got an idea. Let's really use Kickstarter to validate it. And you got to remember in the early days of Kickstarter, you see Kickstarter campaigns that come now very polished, like the product is going to go whether Kickstarter goes or not. Back then it was really validation tool. Here's my idea. I don't have the capital. Do you guys like it? If so, pre-buy them and we'll go from there. And that's sort of how we started. So we did that with the opener. It took off, did really well. It was quite a polarizing product, which we liked. People either loved it or they hated it, but they talked about it. So it was perfect. How could you hate it? People hated it. I'm telling you, people hated it and it was perfect because they, they talked more about it. They clicked on it and they told their friends how much they hate it and their friends come and buy it. So it was perfect. And it was just polarizing. Then there was people who loved it. Just go to a barbecue or a pub or a bar and just, and just they sold themselves, so to speak, which we needed because we had no money. It's got that great social experiment and like bragging rights, doesn't it? And also it's got like iPhone was a very in thing at the time. still is an in thing, but it was more novel. And having that like an internet connected device, opening a beer, it was sort of a bit absurd, but a bit of fun. And it, it did appeal to a certain certain demographic. I still remember there were beer apps around that time. It was literally like Heineken or something and you could just open up the app and it would just be a fizzy beer and that's all it was. And you pretend to drink it? Yes. It was one of the first, yeah, yeah. And the beer would go down Yeah. on that bubbly old iPhone 3, yeah. And it yeah. was like, how cool because is this? I know, they've got a gyro in the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah. That's the era we're talking. Yeah, so we're geeking out now, I think. But, yeah, so... We did that product and then it was, we knew, we were sort of aware this is going to be a fad. And Chris already had that idea as we spoke about around, you know, the iPhone and Google Maps was just new, no Apple Maps at that time. And putting that like right up in front was, it was, it was a great idea. And then it was sort of, we took the money from that, built Quadlock out further. And then once again, went back to Kickstarter and said, there's this other idea. It looks like this. Do you want to get involved? And once again, people got around it, but 
the funny thing with Quadlock is it's not as polarizing. It's not as much of a fad. It's kind of like, actually, that makes sense. I'm interested. I'll do that. Other people are like, no way I'm putting my probably back then $600 iPhone on my handlebars and things like that. So it was a bit different and it, and it, it did well, funded itself. We had a bit of a following. A lot of back then, a lot of it was about like building our following before we do something. And then based on that, effectively, we sort of, you know, month to month slowly grew, not like the opener, um, slowly grew and then had some big learnings that we had to work out and like messaging, how to talk about it, what actually is the benefit that people are buying. We had a lot of really good solid learnings with that. We actually worked out we had to sell less to sell more, which was not that it's a quad lock and you can put it on your bike and you can put a wall man in your car or you can put it on your wall and you can do this, this. Like all those things are cool, but we went back to saying quad lock, the iPhone bike mount, and this just hammered that message home and this sales just took off. Once we sort of learned that, it took a little while. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you probably have a little hunch that there's a big future in e-commerce. And if you're anything like me, you want to know what the next big trends are. Luckily, Shopify have done the hard work for us and compiled the Future of Commerce report for 2022. They identify the main trends in e-commerce, retail, and shipping. And they go a step further with practical tips on how to implement them and insights from the best in the business. There's heaps of info available on the site on what I must say is a very well-designed page, as well as a comprehensive PDF available for download. Head on over to shopify.com.au forward slash research forward slash future of commerce to download it today. We'll also put the link in our show notes for easy access. I could imagine there's a big trust barrier that you'd have to build there as, or get over because, like you said, these iPhones at the time were precious things. They were like, do not break my iPhone because there's not many of them and I'm really lucky to have it. And it's still precious. I mean, if you name another device or another thing other than maybe your kids and your wife or something like that, that that's, you could take away yeah. and you'd feel as lost without it. It's not, it's not really your Mac or your computer or your car or whatever. It's, it's still the iPhone or Android, whatever. At that time, we were only iPhone as well. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Well, at the time, this is a long time ago, internet was pretty different. I think you really you have to think about it. You know, Facebook was still pretty new. Like if you had someone follow, you couldn't put videos on there. No, you could put videos on. You just couldn't do lives. You, you just put a YouTube link in and, the, and it would play natively within facebook but your fans actually saw it organically right yeah taking people on the journey was the key to it back then it was when we're doing opener it was this is what we're doing we don't know if the blade should be this thick or this thick we're making all these different ones we're opening all these beers with iphones we're like that's absurd but i love it i'm gonna buy one and then from there it's like okay so we're putting this on the bike we're lifting the bike up with it we're just doing all this basic stuff people are watching it and they go okay this is like this is a considered product these guys are really trying to solve a problem. And it's not just this piece of plastic in a cardboard box. It's like there's people connected to it. And you think about a lot of the products. It's probably happening more so now. But back then, a lot of what you would buy was cheap, shiny stuff or something that has a big brand name on it that you've known for ever. You just know that name. It wasn't so much so 
oh, there's these guys down the road, unless it was a cafe or a bakery or something like that. So getting like a consumer product from people that you could look and say, those two dudes made that thing and I'm buying it off of them. That was sort of novel back then. It's a bit more normal now. That's really cool. So tell us, we've gone down, it's been good for me because a bit of reminiscing about that time and <laughs> a bit of therapy. Tell us about where Quadlock are now because in the research tools that I've used and some of the conversations we've had, I really do think you are one of the most under-the-radar success stories in e-commerce in Australia. Can you give us an idea on the scale and the reach of Quadlock globally? Nathan, you sound like the emails that get high. We acquire brands and sell them on Amazon. We want yes. to buy Quadlock. We've seen that you are... That was going to be my next question, actually. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, no, we're, like I say, 10 years at this now, 10 years plus. We sell in over 100 countries. Um, we're north of $100 million in, in revenue, profitable from day one, still very profitable now. And that's probably sort of the key to our success is we've been always fairly measured in how we've gone about it. We sort of find the win and then ride the win and then engineer the next win while we're doing that. And we always we do things in a scalable way. But it's not like we do things like we don't go and double the team overnight, although we've come close to doing that at times. But everything is sort of pulled from the market led. We get something right, then we follow it up. That's sort of how we've always done it. We find a win, we follow it up. And a lot of it comes back to, it sounds good now, but a lot of it comes back to like there wasn't a choice. We didn't have any money. We're a bootstrap startup. We only had as much money as we had. And that was just personal finances. Like we had to Product businesses, as you probably know, not the easiest things to scale. You need to buy big MOQs. You need to um, hold stock for sometimes long amounts of time. But that D2C nature that we started with, you get paid instantly. And it's just like you can work out a way to you know, sell one and buy a whole heap more and get them in the door, not pay yourself. You can make it work. And that's what we did for a long time. And then obviously pay yourself, get more staff, do all that. But even with the more staff, even with like the budgets we have today, it's still a bit of that bootstrappy mindset of like, this is, yeah, we can do that, but is it going to pay? How are we going to measure it? How are we going to know whether we should be spending the money here or here? We've got to work that out first before we go and spend the first cent. That sort of default mode of operating here, like everyone sort of thinks like that. How do you get that? Because that's a founder's mentality, right? That's an entrepreneur's mentality. How do you get that throughout the rest of your team? One thing is we're lucky. We have lots of team members here that have been here a long time. You know, some being seven, six, five years. Like we were pretty small still back then. So, you know, some of those guys have come in, learnt the trade, so to speak. And they know like what they learnt was those ideas. So that becomes their sort of almost default way of, way of thinking. It's not like you're pulling people out of an agency and giving them a 20 million budget on day one. Like that hasn't really happened here. It's more like, we do it this way and we try to work it out that way. And if we get a win, we ride it hard and then we go from there. The other thing we do well, I think this is another great thing we have is, and I realized someone came into the business, like they came in probably almost five years ago now, but I, I realized at the time, like, actually, you've got to really make everyone realize it's okay to fuck it up. It's fine. As long as we work it out and we know it, that's great. Let's make take that learning. Let's own the learning. And once you start owning it and taking it, people don't feel bad about it. They feel liberated by it. And then you're like, so that means we can actually try anything. And that's very liberating. We can try anything we want. We'll throw as much of the wall at the wall as we can. Whatever sticks, we'll do more of that. And that kind of mentality, it's logical, I think, but it's not the default thinking of everyone when they land. So, you know, over time, I've realized you've got to 
spend a bit of time to make sure everyone sort of works, uh, gets cool with that quickly because you don't want to be the one in the room going, oh, no, I've done this thing and it didn't work out. Like, because what we want is like, bring it up. Let's talk about it. Look at it. Nobody cares. It's like, great, oh, worth trying. Let's either scrap it or let's iterate on that. Is there another version of that? Where do we go from here? Yeah, so that's some of those kind of, I don't know, default ways of thinking I think have contributed a lot to our success. But I do think if someone had given us a whole heap of money at the start and said, go and build this thing, it wouldn't be like that. It was built from necessity. Yeah. Do you remember either a really great win that changed the trajectory or, or the scale of your business or a massive fuck up that you learned from? <laughs> is there any, any that stand out for you over those 10 years? I tell you, this is really early and I almost got to it before it was, when we're saying we became the iPhone bike mount and we started selling heaps of things, that was great because people would understand the message, they come and they buy the iPhone bike mount. At the same time, we're like, it's meant to be so much more than this. We're meant to be making all these other products. What if we can't make it work? And then this was a huge win. We were like, right, we put our hats on. We thought, so people at the time, we didn't realize it then, still early days, but we're not an iPhone case brand. We're a motorcycle product. We're a cycling product. We're a car product. We're a full drive product. We're a boating product. We're all these things, and this happens to be mounting a smartphone. So we're the activity first, and we speak to people activity first. And we took us a little while to realize that. It's obvious in hindsight, like everything. But we sort of took everything off the site, just went iPhone bike mount. Then we're like, right, how do we get it back on there? And you'd come to our site and you'd shop by what iPhone you have and things like that. Like cringe thinking about it now, to be honest. <laughs> and but where we ended up is like, no, 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 this person's a cyclist. They're a runner. So then we changed it to you shop by activity. And it sounds obvious in hindsight. It's funny. I remember we were flying to CS and we sort of launched this website and we were like, if we can start selling these extra products that we already had, like the, the running arm bound, the drive solution, that kind of thing, and keep selling cycle, if we can put them all up and the next day we sell the same amount or slightly more, we're onto a good thing with one. And you know, when you're working on something, you sort of start convincing yourself at the same time. I was aware of that. I'm just like, it's just, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. We put it up there and we actually sold more the next day, more the day after that. And we went, right, we can start tailoring our message. But then we took those learnings and those learnings then ran all through all of our ads, all of our messaging, everything. Like you'll see an ad and you'll just think, oh, Quadlock are just the motorcycle mount company. They just do that. But then when you come, you'll end up in the motorcycle section, but then you realize, oh, hang on, they do more than that. But if we try to sell that everything at once, I think it comes back to trust. Like you want something that's really solid on your adventure tour, keeping you charged so you can go and ride two weeks in the rain, mud, dirt, all this kind of thing. You've got to trust it. If you have this brand tell you, oh, yeah, we do the best cycling mounts and the best desk charger and we do the best car mount and we do the best wall mount and we do a really good motorcycle, mount, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We've taken it and we, we still take, we still think about it like that today. So that was a little win. Like it's not like we doubled sales overnight or something, but we started selling more with more complexity on the website and we didn't lose conversions. That was a huge win. Like we wouldn't be here without that win. And even today, you can see on the website that you've got a really great GIF, I think it is, on, on the homepage, which shows all the uses, like goes through them really quick, car, bikes, marine, 
motorcycle and then even get someone using it to play guitar and then underneath really clear categories around yeah car marine so it's a great way it hasn't changed much since we're actually working on a new homepage at the moment which is just the same version it just looks a bit prettier yeah yeah nice and then in terms of your customers do you in a crm or, or in your back end where you store your customer data do you have them really clearly labeled and segmented around those activities yeah that's a good question so the way we think about it even when we do customer surveys and things like that, we try and extract information from the customer. Not all our customers are the same. So we know that. And it's, it's not like we're a retailer where they may be selling T-shirts and you know, you'll like this T-shirt and you'll like this T-shirt. There's some people who just want to know about something for their motorcycle. There's other people who just want to know about something for their, their road bike and they don't care in between. So what we talk about is people get into quadlock through like a passion category. So effectively, we solve a problem in their passion category. So they come in and we talk about them as like cycle first customers. Turns out a lot of people who cycle actually have motorcycles and cars and, and all the rest of it as well. But still, if you try to group them all together, you don't know what's important to a cyclist is not the same thing that's important to a motorcyclist. So we have different messages that can go out to these different target audiences when we're trying to solve that initial problem in the passion category that they're in. So we talk about, yeah, ride first, drive first, moto first. That's the way we sort of think about our customer. And do you have you found over time that there are some people that are more likely to be same category? So, for example, motorcyclists are likely to be musos as well. Or Yeah, well, a big one we've found throughout, for example, when we started selling in the early days, selling lots of bike mount products, right? And then we did a little bit of motor drive and some other things. Well, their motor took off really quick. You're thinking, okay, so they buy a cycling product. Next thing, they probably have a car. You hit them up with a car. Then you start thinking, which does work very, very well. Then you see the next most bought thing is actually just another, another. This is when you're just looking at sell-through to customers versus asking the customer the whys. And this is why it's, you can get misled. You say, oh, they're buying more mounts. What are they doing here? second like what is it and then you realize you ask people and like multiple of our enthusiast customers have like three plus bikes and so then you end up on all their bicycles so it's not that they've bought the bike mount don't tell them about bikes anymore talk about no they've bought the stem mount tell them about the out front mount aluminium low profile version for their road bike or maybe the short reverse over the stem one for their mountain bike that might be the next thing that they're interested in so you really got to i always think about like data can be Awesome, it can be misleading. Sometimes you've got to get that level deeper. And so, you know, talk to the customers, customer surveys, trying to understand like why that behavior, especially for us. This is a bit of an advantage. We, not an advantage, but a nice thing being a brand like a Quadlock. Really, we have a quite a small set of SKUs. Like everything we sell, we've designed and we make, right? So we don't have the biggest. We wish we had more product, but we've got, we've got all these guys making all those next versions of the product and going into new categories and all that. We can't just click our fingers and go and buy it. So as we scale up, we've got more to, more to offer the customers. But one of the nice things is it's still a small SKU subset. So you can get really deep into what is the customer doing and thinking because it's not like we have kids from like, you know, 12 to 80. We have like, you know, motorcyclists on average is like, you know, the absolute core customers like, 40 to 55 years old. That's like the core adventure tour type cyclist. We can go right into that. Then we can go, what about the guys who are riding scooters? What about the people who are riding sports bike? Or what about the cafe racer scene? We're big there. And you can really start tailoring it 
for the niches within the niches. That's something that we have as a brand that not all retailers can do that. Oh, in some ways, it's almost harder because you're, it's like you're running multiple retail stores here. You know, you're running a golf store, you're running a running store, a marine store with limited product in each. Yes, yes. And luckily, when you get this sort of, what we've found is like, you know, active lifestyle type people have mad crossover. They don't just do one thing often. They do multiple things. So I could imagine that you have pretty sticky customers because once they're in the quad lock ecosystem, they're in. Totally. And I mean, literally lock them in. What happens is you buy a product from your first passion category, say it's for your motorcycle, but then you go, I love it on my motorcycle. Why don't I have it on my, in my car? And then why don't I have it beside my bed at night while it's charging, just sitting there? And then you have these multiple mounts. So it actually becomes like the barrier to exit is quite large. Because if you got rid of that case, you'd have to go buy all these other mounts. And the other thing is people have the product, they get sold on it more and more, the more they use it, and it just becomes part of your daily life. So from a product sense, it's worked really well. And then prioritizing that relationship with the customer, which we've done for so long, trying to look after the customer, comms, these kind of things, it's just the easy option. They know that when the new iPhone comes out, the new Galaxy comes out, we have the case ready to go straight away. They can jump online, order that case. It's going to rock up a few days later, no matter where in the world they are. And it's just an easy relationship. And we see customers coming back time and time again. And one of the great things is the more products we've had and the bigger we've gotten, we're actually getting stickier and stickier. So if you look at, like for example, I know the 2017 cohort of customers that onboarded in that year uh, almost at like I think it's 50% retention now of those customers but if you go back a few years before in the same year after it's it's slightly less and then if we look forward in the last couple of years customers we've onboarded they're not only only spending more because we've got more options to that they can you know get involved with they're also coming back at greater rates so yeah it works on multiple levels for the business You've probably got some great intelligence there that the uh, the phone manufacturers could fall over themselves around when people are ready to upgrade. Well, I think it used to be upgrade time for us especially. This is something that's changed a lot in the recent history. It's like we would just run ads to our existing audience just based on and just target only the people with new phones. So as soon as you went onto like your Facebook or your Instagram for the first time with a brand new phone, you would get, hey, you with the iPhone 13. <laughs> How about you come back and buy a quadlock? Best returning ads we ever got. Like we could do it with an email. We could do that, but it's a bit of fun. And people are like, oh, this guy, bang. Yeah. So that kind of thing has um, dropped off a bit, but we still know that it's different in different countries. You know, a lot of countries like in the US here, people buy a lot of iPhones out right now. That didn't used to be the case. In the US, they're all, lots of them are on two-year plans. So it's different in different countries, really. A lot of it comes down to the plan. And you'll see as iPhones have gone up in price, plan like being on a plan is a bigger, a bigger thing. They really do lock people in to those the telco plans with the phone. And you mentioned there about being able to release product, new quad lock product quickly after manufacturers come out with new designs and new models. Obviously, those new releases and new drops are heavily guarded secrets. How do you get ahead of the game to create your product to make sure it fits? We've been doing it a long time now and yeah, it works out for us. Definitely works out. Sounds like we've got to remain pretty tight-lipped around that process for uh, obvious reasons, but it's something you do really well. Yeah, no cheers. If we flip the question then, 
How do you stop someone else from coming along and doing a quad lock ripoff? Yeah, it's a good question. And to be honest, they do it. It happens. But uh, early days, when we got no money with quad lock, one of the things we did spend money on, on was a patent. So we patented the original mechanism, and um, that's a great start. But patents are quite a gray area. And it costs a lot to enforce and to even prove. It's just the, the start of an argument, really. So patent is one thing. But really, when it comes down to it, I think the best thing you can do is use your patent to give you a head start to build your brand. And then once you build your brand big enough, that becomes the moat. The fact is people, perfect example, you can go on Google Trends and you type in like iPhone bike mount, you'll see iPhone bike mount has gone like that as quad lock's gone like this. So the, the search term quad lock's bigger than iPhone bike mount now. And that's like probably the best barrier we could have. You could have all the patents, all the trademarks, everything in the world. So your trademark, your brand is probably one of the biggest barriers to entry from everyone else doing it. And when it comes down to it, you get people copying we call them, you know, you get the copycats, which are copying actually what you're doing, buying it, trying to reverse engineer, right? Then you get what we call like tribute brands, which is brands we're trying to copy the way you go to market, roughly what you're doing, your messaging, those kind of things. And they're probably the ones that are the bit better competitors and try. But the, the, the fact of the matter is we've got like 10 years in the market. We have millions of customers, you know, tens of thousands of reviews, maybe 100,000 reviews, all that just builds this big presence in the market and the fact if you go for a ride with your mates or something someone's probably got a quad lock if you start driving riding for Deliveroo Deliveroo send you an email hey we recommend quad lock get a discount like this bang and they and they all have quad locks so there's just this barrier to entry and now we're doing a lot more looking at OEM working with different manufacturers things like that things that we can do that are interesting that just more so build that moat build that wall around us yeah, and, and at the end of the day, the pull from the market in the sort of the good part of the market, the market that wants to buy something of good quality, a lot of that pull is for, is for quad lock. And I think part of that comes from like we sort of built a category. There wasn't really anything there. It's hard to do. It takes a while. But once you've done it, it's kind of like you've been made all that investment over the years. That doesn't go anywhere. It sort of only gets bigger. Yeah. The dog days are over for Shy Tiger, who have finally cracked their packaging dilemma. Shy Tiger makes all-natural serums and sprays for your four-legged friend. The problem is, they're expensive to send safely and individually. That was until they introduced Signet's Giami Xbox Mini in conjunction with Signet's water-activated paper tape. Not only is the packaging solution 100% eco-friendly, but they've also saved 92% in packaging costs and can happily report zero breakages. That's nothing to bark at. Signet have over 5,500 packaging solutions that help leading e-commerce retailers like Shy Tiger step up their packaging game. Visit signet.net.au to find out more. That's signet.net.au. Have you heard any vernacular changing around that? Like, instead of, hey, you should go get a bike mount for your phone, it's like, you should go quad lock your phone? Yeah, quad lock it. Yeah, just get a quad lock. You see it in the comments, people typing, oh, but this, and like, do just get a quad lock. Do just get a quad Just get a quad lock. I had a quad lock for six years, seven years. Yeah, I'm on to my fourth, fifth, that kind of thing. Yeah, nice. And now in terms of your sales channel, I understand you've got a mixture of B2B, D2C and wholesale. 
how has that changed over the years and where are you putting most of your focus now? Yeah, it's changed a lot. So early days was just complete, you know, startup D to C type scrappy operation, although we, we were pretty global. And then as we've built that out and become a bigger brand, you sort of think that, oh, we've got to do the normal thing. We should be in stores. We should be selling to these distributors. We should be in JB Hi-Fi. And you sort of start to think that's maybe what success is. And so you start going down that route. And we went down that route around the world and with mixed results, a lot of different markets. Some markets just got completely out of control. Some markets like Australia has done great. We've had good partners here for quite a while. And it's like the more we sell online, the more we market, the more they sell, the more they sell in store, the more we sell. And it's just like the rising tide rates all ships, which is the model you sort of want, I believe, in this day and age. But we didn't get it right. And what we did is we turned in about 2017, 28, we turned a lot of it off. We just turned it off. We had to pay our way out of different contracts and things like that, but we just turned a lot of it off. And we just thought, right, we've got to get back to doing what we do best, which is advertising, acquiring a customer, spending the money we make on the, from that customer on more advertising and buying more product, developing more, and just go. We did that and like we almost doubled in the next year of turning it off and going back to just D2C. But we're never, we're never thinking we are specialty product and we always have seen value in these specialty channels because we're selling to niches, right? Independent bike dealers, like for one, it's just such a busy, crazy market. But is people go there to get help, buy bikes, talk to people, sit on the bike, trying to helmet, all this stuff, like old school stuff that it just works. There's still good value in it, you know, and there's great retailers out there like, we started selling to 99 bikes in the early days and I think they would have more, moved more locks than any, any single, anyone, not us, but <laughs> anyone else. But by being in those specialist retailers, you're being part of the community as well, right? And it's not 100% and it's not about selling into the community. It's about being part of that community. It's literally one of our goals. So it's about being there, getting the feedback, that kind of thing. So right now what we're doing is actually we've got a much more measured and a better approach to it. What else we have is the brand is much bigger. People agree to the terms and conditions. We get a lot more respect when we go into these uh, negotiations because they're sick of people walking into their stores asking for quad lock and they can't, well, we don't have it. We have this other thing. No, no, there to buy a quad lock. Yeah. So that's what we're doing right now. We're rolling out a lot in our, um, we call it our B2B sales, which is distribution, as well as we've done something pretty innovative, which is like a direct to retail. So we have B2B portals where independent bike stores, or, you know, it could be a kiting store, a boating store or whatever, a motorcycle garage. You can get an account with us and they can buy a discount and supply it to their, to their customers. So some of these places like do bike builds and they're building a custom bike, they can just get online, order the quad lock for them, build it into the, into the bike for them and that kind of thing. So we've got this direct to um, retail as well as direct to consumer as well as distribution going on. So we think that it's sort of, it's about being where the customers are. Yeah. And it's so great for people with those existing passions, but also people getting into their passion. Imagine buying your first bike and it's also coming with a quad lock because then you're in kind of two ecosystems then all of a sudden you're like. Totally. And one of the coolest things is, you know, when you go and you buy a bicycle from a store, there's actually not that. It's not, even if you're buying a few hundred, hundred dollar bike, it's not as much margin as you think. It's pretty tight. You know, getting that helmet and that quad lock and something that can be as much margin as the bike at times, but that independent bike dealer. So it's a good deal all around. And then the best thing about what people like about quad lock is lots of things come and go. 
But if you bought a bike mount from us 10 years ago, you can still be using, like you can go through 10 iPhones and be on your 10th iPhone and still be using that same mount. So we're here to stay. Yeah. That's awesome. You've touched on it a few times about being bootstrapped and growing this iteratively over time. But what I love about it is that you've set or seem to have set this business up to be international from the get-go. It's not that that has limited you saying, well, we've got to crack Australia first and be you know, 100% thorough in Australia. You've set this up to be a global business from the start. Can you give us a bit of insight on that? Yeah, I think there's different ways of thinking about this. Our sort of thought was, the more customers you get, it turns out customers end up becoming more expensive to get. You get the cheaper ones, the early adopters first. And we sort of thought 3PLs were sort of coming online at that time. So I thought, why don't we set, well, actually, in Australia, there was nothing. We were shipping them out ourselves for ages. There was nothing good at the time back then. But we set up with Shipwire, which was Ingram Micro, in, who got bought by Ingram Micro. Now we bought by Civil, Civil Logistics. But with those guys in LA, so we could do... You know, the US, we could do here and we ship from the US to the UK and we started that way. And it was kind of like, well, why don't we just go broad and just go get all the early adopter customers? Because, you know, you got to remember 10 years ago, iPhones, it's kind of early adopter behavior at that time. It wasn't as mass as it is now. You got in people's cars back then. Not many people had car mounts. Getting people's cars now, lots of people have car mounts for their phones and things like that. It's very normal. So putting on your bike was even just ridiculous. So we went and got all those early adopters and we just thought we can just roll out. Once again, we don't have any SKUs. If you are a fashion brand or something, I appreciate it's harder to do. We have hardly any product obsolescency. We just, we just hold on to products and they eventually sell. At times, mainly our problems are keeping up with, with the sales, to be honest. So we could work out a way that was pretty cost effective to open up multiple warehouses. And then when we went into UK and then we went to EU, warehouse in Asia. We could just keep bolting on these warehouses and just getting all those early adopters from that market still nice and cheap because when we go into a brand new market, this all happened quite quickly really in a couple of years, we start getting really cheap, really cheap customer acquisition costs straight away. And we just keep doing it. And it, yeah. But I do see, I'm mean, getting conversations and people do put a lot of barriers in front of themselves to doing these things. A perfect example is I remember talking to Retailer, a brand you've had on this show before. They're awesome. And they said, oh, man, like what if we go into um, the EU? Do we have to do a French store? Do we have to do a German store? Do we have to do an Italian store? Do we have to do this, do that, do that? I'm like, you know what? It'll probably be better if you do that. But trust me, we did tests and we just went with an English store and it's now like four or five years old and we still just got an English store and we've got to change it. So we've got millions of customers there. So, you know, putting off like... Test, measure, learn, maybe get in there. If it works, you can always do it better down the track. Keeping a website offline, waiting till everything's perfect, it's never going to be perfect. Get out there, get something up. That's when you start learning. That's when you start iterating. And if anything, it brings the success forward. It doesn't push it back. That's my, like, and if it doesn't work, lesson learned, you'll still know more than when you go to do it right. Mm. Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of, especially in the last six months, a lot of Aussie brands because we've had a great couple of years going, now's the time to attack the US. But it feels like everyone's doing it at once. Like there's all these Aussie brands going over to the US. Do you feel like Aussie brands haven't been as aggressive in taking their products overseas as they should have been? Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's aggressive or if it's that it's like intimidating to do so. You know, you used to hear this, these things that 
Pacific scattered with brands who never got to the US and that kind of thing. But it was a different era. It was a way different era. I think like I just always come back to thinking the customer. The customer that you sell to in Australia, if you put them on a stool next to the customer they're going to sell to, they'll get along like a house on fire and they're the same. Little differences, yes. But big things, do they have the same problems? Do they like the same stuff? It's similar. It's the same. And especially when you're talking about a market the size of America, you don't need everyone to be your customer. You just need to go get your part, your little portion, and you'll find them. I also understand, though, at, at a certain point, we were niche early on, very niche type product. Not every, we weren't for everyone. So being broader made more sense. Maybe if you were in the kind of market and you were selling something more generic, maybe I always liked the idea of going deeper rather than broader, but we would do that in a product sense. We would go deeper into a niche with the product, but broader with the geography. Because we didn't, we, our website could be exactly the same. Our copy, exactly the same. Our videos, exactly the same. Our photos, exactly the same. We didn't have to change it. There was no more real complexity. A little bit of tax. Actually, there's heaps of tax when you're doing yeah, the properly. <laughs> <laughs> but even that's sorted now. Use that like Avalar and good tools that are out there. Yeah, it's all doable. And to be honest, it's never been easier. So, you know, if you can do it and you can do it in a... The thing, it's easy to do things when you don't bet the farm. Because if you just use who's a little bit out of the back paddock, it doesn't matter. That's it. And you touched on it there is around there are the tools that are set up to be international. Like if you're in Australia running an e-commerce business, it's likely that you're already on a platform that works internationally. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, that might not be the case because you had separate instances. But now you can go, actually, spin me up another site here. And it has... You can just do it. And and to be honest, the, th- the other thing is like, we do it pretty scrappy. Like we'll do things such as we want to see which countries in Asia were the best for us to target. What are our best performing ads? Sending them to the best, most likely product page, motorcycle, run them internationally, push them through the US site and go, okay, it's USD. It's maybe not the best shipping. Maybe we'll even just discount the shipping, just ship them for free or something. I don't know what we do. And just test, measure, learn and go, okay, oh, Philippines. That's an interesting market. Korea, this, that. And you go, okay, well, just based on that, Let's go spin up that new 3PL that can service that market and then let's go hammer. I remember it was like India as well. We spun it up. We start going throughout most of Southeast Asia and bit to India. India, great pull from the market. <laughs> Logistics, trying to get it there, didn't work. Doesn't matter. We'll turn it off. We'll get to that and do it again later. Let's go back over here to the Philippines. Oh, now we found a distributor. And you just start learning. And then it's like, we better go make a proper site for this and then we'll go do that. But we sort of, it's like we're trying to back like sure things and making them as sure as we can by just doing these little scrappy type tests. Yeah, nice. And in terms of investment, we talked about bootstrapping. I saw an article from a couple of years ago, I think it was where private equity might have been imminent or on the cards. Any investment coming or take yeah, on? Yeah, no, pri- private equity um, quadrant, you would have heard the growth fund. They bought in 2020, so it's been you know a couple of years now working with those guys. So yeah, sort of good corporate governance side. You know, we never had a board meeting in our life, <laughs> you know, those kind of things. So yeah, was the appeal of private equity was it that it led to do more or put those structures in place? Uh, it was sort of part of it it's not like we needed money or anything like that for growth it wasn't really around that what it was it's more around just being very aware that 
you know, you don't know what you don't know. Everything we do, we do for the first time. At the time, the biggest business I'd ever worked in, let alone running at the time. So it just sort of made sense at the time. We're like, you know what, why don't we have a look? And to be honest, we'd been most of we've been approached many times over the journey, mainly by US brands, and nothing had ever ever eventuated, which is probably awesome from, from how it's turned out. And once again, but what we learned along the way is that you never sort of want to be doing like, you know, like have one horse in the right. You never want to have like always one person trying to buy it. So we always we had some advisors over there that we talked to every now and again. And we said if someone comes to buy us, we'll spin up a process real quick. And what happened, someone come to was interested. It turned out in the end they weren't that interested when they got into it. But what we did is we'd already spun up a little process, pushed it out to a few places in the US to mix results and then also PE here in Australia. And a lot of PE in Australia was interested. So we sort of won a process with a few PE firms in Australia and another big one out of the US. And then... um yeah, that's how we ended up with uh, with Quadrant at the time, running around buying a whole heap of these type of businesses. <laughs> You're in a nice little spot there. So what's next on your radar? What's exciting you around the next, uh, say, 12 months at Quadlock? I think um, next 12 months, yeah, well, we've got a lot going on, to be honest. We're really looking at the distribution angle. But what it is, it's more so around what we call, like, you know, be where the customers are, you know, own the space we occupy, being active participant in our market segments. And that's sort of per category, per region. So not just do stuff here, try to do stuff everywhere. So we have a new gentleman starting with this will be a sponsorship manager. So sponsorships events. We have a new created budget for that. So I'm super pumped. I think that'll be awesome. We already do bits of that, but we're just really making it a whole pillar now. And it's just the start of it. So I think that's really exciting. It's about, you know, getting just getting deeper into these niches and these their passion categories for people. Like, you know, we don't just want to be selling it. We want to be in there understanding more, being part of that community. And we do it anyway. We sponsor things and that, but just do that at a better level and have someone whose job is to take care of that. So that's I think that's awesome. That's always the fun part. Even when I was at Super Retail Group and obviously dealing with sport camping and fishing and um, cars they're all passion categories people love it so when you get the foundations right and you get to do the fun stuff like the content and the community and the sponsorships that's the, that's where the fun is yeah and that's where all the good content comes from you know sponsor this we already do it we sponsor people and you have people like um got chris Froome. i know we have someone flying over there to to shoot him i think it's next week which will be awesome we just did a cool piece of content actually with Chris Froome and he was talking about how he thinks racing is probably more dangerous now than ever because of all the data everybody has. And he's like, it's the only time when you say there's a little bridge coming up and a quick right hand after it and we all speed up to try to get there first and get through it. <laughs> and the cool thing was like within the next two or three weeks, every cycling blog around the world, boom, 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 featuring our articles. So that kind of stuff just puts your name in there right where we want to do. B, we've worked with um, Charlie Broman. For a long time, he did the just recently. He did. I loved his old videos that probably got me into my motorcycling back in the day here in Newen. And he just did the long way up, streaming on Apple TV. They had the Apple iPhones and they had quad locks on all their bikes and for the whole thing in Newen. So that was just perfect. That was such a great series. Yeah, it wasn't a good. Yeah, those. The thing is, it's funny. You know, we just do any video with Charlie talking to camera. It just works. Like he just is so easy to listen to. People just stop. Oh, Charlie. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scrolling through and they stop. Yeah. Oh, good. Rob, thank you so much for everything that you've shared. Like I said, I do feel like you are one of the most under-the-radar brands in Australia because you have that global viewpoint. Um, so I really appreciate you taking us behind the scenes of Quadlock today. Now, if people have heard this and they want to find out more about Quadlock or potentially get in touch with you and the team, what's the best way for them to go about that? Yeah, just jump on our website, quadlockcase.com.au or .net and you'll end up on the right store. And yeah, hit us up on, you know, the guys are always telling the people on Instagram and Facebook and that kind of thing or shoot us an email and look me up if it's an e-commy thing. Yeah, we're happy. We're always having... We may be under the radar, but we do know a lot of people still in e-commerce. Oh, yeah. We're always having little chats. So, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Rob, thank you for so, so much for joining us on Adcard. No, thanks, Nathan. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of value out of this podcast as well. So thank you. I said it to Rob straight after we wrapped that conversation, but I am continually thankful for how much our e-commerce guests share with us. I feel we genuinely got 10 years of e-commerce lessons in 40 minutes then. It's amazing stuff. Here are my three biggest takeaways. Number one, developing a product ecosystem. Quadlock is a product built around creating an ecosystem, just like Apple, Lego, or Amazon Prime. Once you are in, you go all in and essentially have blinkers to other options. And it's paid off big time. Rob said that 50% of customers they acquired back in 2017 are still customers today. Now, if you can develop a sticky product or a service ecosystem, you are setting yourself up for an incredible customer retention and lifetime value. Number two, targeting passion categories. If you look on the Quadlock website, they don't market by product types like iPhone or Android cases. They market by passion categories such as cycling and running. They market direct to these passions and solve a problem specific for them. By solving the precise problems for these passion categories, especially the niches within niches, they develop trust and draw them in to the wider quadlock world. It's a really smart strategy. Number three, find a win, ride the win. Rob said this a number of times and he talked about how to scale responsibly, especially as a bootstrapped business. And he said, finding the win and riding the win, it was a theme he kept coming back to. And it really stuck with me. It's about giving yourself enough room to experiment and make mistakes. But when you find something that works, drill into it and go really hard. Don't just move on. Make sure you milk those wins for all they're worth. The targeting of Facebook ads at new phone users was a great example of that. Find the win, ride the win. To get the highlights of today's episode, head on over to addtocart.com.au and sign up for our free newsletter. Each Tuesday, we will send Monday's episode summary, links, and discount codes for you to go next level on. And if you're looking to explore your next e-commerce opportunity, come and visit us at eSuite. We're a dedicated e-commerce talent agency connecting the best e-commerce talent with the fastest growing brands in Australia. Head on over to eSuiteTalent.com.au where you can download the free e-commerce salary guide and sign up to our weekly e-commerce job emails. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep those customers adding to cart.